Mark Saltman jumped in front of the bulldozers that came down, stood in front of it, waved his hands and told told him to stop. And the gentleman driving, it was an older man. And he said, what, what are you doing? And he said, my friend up here's climbed up this tree. They don't want it developed. And he just laughed. He said, oh, I've never seen this before, but I'm not going to run that tree over or that boy. I'll stop. And he turned off his bulldozer and he said, I'm getting paid the rest of the day anyway. Welcome to Made in the High Country, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the high country's entrepreneurial ecosystem and the people within it. From Startup High Country, I'm Samantha Wright, and this show is here to shine a light for aspiring or struggling entrepreneurs in our area to the resources available to support them, as well as highlight the amazing opportunities, massive talent, and unique success stories that exist here in the mountains of Western North Carolina. Whether you call the high country your home or not, this show will leave you with interesting insights, actionable tips, and fascinating stories aimed to inspire and entertain. Today on our show, you'll get to know one of our founding members here at Startup High Country, Jeffrey Scott. Stay tuned for his fascinating stories around social entrepreneurship and his insightful thoughts about the choices we make in our lifetime. Currently, Jeffrey Scott is a growth coach for founders of mission-driven startups, He works as a fractional chief financial officer or chief revenue officer for early stage startups through his business, Metamorphic Consulting. And he's held hugely impactful roles for large mission-first companies such as Heifer International, The High Country Conservancy, Stepping Stone, and more. For someone who dropped out of college five times, it's fun to see how much he's accomplished in his career and in our community. From a very early age, Jeffrey pushed back against what he called the societal treadmill. Graduate high school, go to college, uh, get a job, get married, you know, the whole domestication cycle. Didn't like it. I never worked well with it. Just do everything you're supposed to do. And it was more about what others thought of you, not what you wanted to do. That was what was that generation from the South, at least my mom and dad, it was all about what others thought about you and your family. Uh, and I, I just bucked that. I hated it. We lovers of the outdoors here can direct a lot of our gratitude towards Jeffrey Scott for his role in helping to preserve over 15,000 acres of land in our region and protecting so many of the natural spaces beloved by locals and outsiders alike in the high country. What I love about this chat with Jeffrey is how clearly it shows his passion for social entrepreneurship. He's the kind of person who makes you want to fight for what you believe in and live your life in alignment with what makes you excited. And if you're thinking to yourself, I'm not even sure what gets me fired up anymore, but I sure know that I don't love this. Well, you likely have a lot in common with the young Jeffrey Scott, who found himself leaving his hometown of Spartanburg, South Carolina, and coming to Boone for college at Appalachian State University, not really knowing what to make of himself, but knowing that he needed a change. I was so ready to get out, and I had a a mentor, counselor, Jim Mankey, in high school, and he just took me under his wing and said, if you want to get out of here, you need to get into college. And I was not on the track to get into college. I was not. Um, I went to school when I, but I didn't really pay attention. I was more of a B, C, D student. He encouraged me and I turned my grades around and 
took like the SAT 10 times to combine scores and somehow got into half state. The only place I wanted to go because I've been backpacking in the mountains quite a bit in the summers and just love that the thunderstorms, the late afternoon smell of a thunderstorm. And I don't know, it just stayed in my mind. And so that's the only place I applied and I got in and yeah, I bet it was probably an easier school to get in. Oh, it was. Then. Oh my gosh. There's no way I would have gotten in now. Um, so yeah, I was blessed by getting in and then finding a guidance counselor that told me I should quit and hike the Appalachian trail. Uh, <laughs> once you got to, yeah. ASU, once you got to app you. So, so one mentor from your high school said, I see you and think you yeah. need to go to college. This is, this is what, you know, would be good for you. And then you get to college and a different mentor says, Jeffrey, you got to get out of here. Yeah. And, and I think she knew that it wasn't a question of my curiosity to learn. It was just not right now. Go see some of the world, go do some things you want to do while you still can, while you're able, you don't, you're not tied down into a job and a family and your legs are strong and your spirit's wild. Go, you'd have your adventure and then you could see what's next. And she put a bet on me and I said, well, would you write that down and send a letter to my dad? She did. (laughs) So my dad was pissed. He was was like, well, dad, look, guidance counselor says I got to quit and hike day T. That's what I got to (laughs) do. And we stayed in touch. And I'd say about halfway through, we were on a phone call. I mean, we had public pay phones back then, no cell phones. And, and he said, you know, Jeffrey, I really wish I was out there with you. And I thought that was the coolest thing. So he came around to it. He knew I was, I was going to, you know, march to a different tune. Yeah. And I've seen so many parents very quickly kind of change their mind, right? When they originally think something was a a terrible idea and then, but they just see, they see how good that decision was for the person. Even if it ended up, you know, a failure, you got to like let your kids make their own mistakes sometimes and let them just carve out their own path. That's right. That's right. And, you know, for me, my big, one of my big principles that I learned on the trail and I, I try to stay true to it, um, but it's expect nothing and accept everything. And that's really helped me on my entrepreneurial journey is just don't get attached to the outcomes because they're probably not going to look like you thought they would when you stepped into that journey. I know the AT did not, and I know every one of my adventures have not. Um, and learning to just roll with it, count on your support, count on your team, count on your, your abilities. Uh, that you have with you um and then count on trail magic to happen because it always does i mean think doors open and people show up in your life i mean mentors show up that's never not happened uh, but it, usually if i'm holding the wheel too tight or my expectations are too strong i get crushed by them and that's just self-inflicted damage and it's just it's pointless so that was a principle i learned a long time ago and so i it's, it's served me well Jeffrey finished hiking the AT and then returned to Appalachian State, where he joined the recreation program. But he soon grew frustrated over the school's focus on theory over action. In 1993, a developer bought Howard's Knob, one of Boone's most cherished local hangouts and bouldering destinations at the time. This iconic mountain was the hangout destination. It overlooks ASU and historic downtown Boone, And when Jeffrey found out that a developer was planning to build 44 home sites on this beloved natural resource, he wanted to do something about it. I tried to get the school involved. Why don't we buy this, make a park out of it? This is what we're studying. And they just, we can't do that. That's not what we do. 
we we taught we 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 look at theory and we look at what's happened in the past, but we don't really do anything. <laughs> I was like, "Are you kidding me? This is really?" Uh, and that was frustrating. So I quit again. I gave all my possessions away and I moved into the woods and built a shack in the woods. I did the true Thoreau. I was reading a lot of Tom Brown and built a built a shack on Joey Henson's land, who's a dear friend and climber and. And through that, we started the uh, the high country, uh, what was the Watauga High Country Land Trust at the time. Then it became the High Country Conservancy, uh, and now it's the Blue Ridge Conservancy. But that was my first sort of step into organizing people uh, and leading um, with a purpose in mind, you know, to save the mountain. Uh, and not knowing how, that wasn't really the point. There was a hundred different hows. We tried a lot of them. <laughs> right. Is that why it went through so many iterations and so many names? That and the land trust movement was young. So the land trusts are, you know, nonprofits that um, receive uh, and purchase ecologically significant or recreationally significant lands and hold it for perpetuity. It's actually written in the contracts forever, which Mark Twain had a great quote, forever is a long time, especially when you get towards the end. <laughs> and so there's a lot of stewardship and liability that goes on with protecting land because it's you're signing, you know, your your management and and if you had to defend a piece of land, it's forever. And so these land trusts it was a very young movement at the time. There were four land trusts in the state. Um, and when I finished, there was 24 when I finished doing my land trust work. Uh, so I got to kind of watch it grow up. And I was a young executive director without a lot of, you know, real mentorship, but a small group of land trusts around the state uh, working together to try to build the movement. And so it was a kind of exciting social entrepreneurship journey for me. And tell us about the moment this kind of came to an exciting head with, uh, you know, people jumping in front of bulldozers and you sitting on the uh, at the top of a tree for, for a long time. Tell us that story. Sure. So uh, Howard's Knob was for sale. Uh, we were trying to reach a deal with the owner, uh, to purchase the property, um, we came got really close to a deal. We thought that we had a deal. We had a price. We had a contract, but it wasn't signed, and it was supposed to be signed uh, that week. Um, it didn't get signed, and then bulldozers showed up and started pushing in driveways. So we had to move quick, and so it was a strategic decision to try to shine a light on the on the subject and try to get people to pay attention to. You know, the loss of a really incredible resource that you can't put back again. Uh, and so we went up there early one morning, a gentleman named Mark Saltman and myself. Uh, and the I went and climbed up a little shaggy bark hickory with a harness, uh, climbed about 40 feet up. And then Mark Saltman jumped in front of the bulldozers that came down and told him to stop, stood in front of it. Mark's a big man probably six, four and waved his hands and told, told him to stop. And, uh, the gentleman driving, it was an older man. And he said, what, what are you doing? And he said, my friend up here's climbed up this tree. They don't want it developed. And he just laughed. He said, Oh, I've never seen this before, but I'm not going to run that tree over or that boy I'll stop. And he turned off his bulldozer and he said, I'm getting paid the rest of the day anyway. <laughs> so eight hours later, there was probably 30 of my supporters on the cliff beside the tree. Uh, and then there was all the fire and rescue, all the police, the town, 
sheriff, everybody was up there. Um, and they were all trying to figure out how to get me out of the tree. And in the end, which was really funny, I had long hair at the time. They, they sent a long haired um, fire and rescue guy to try to talk me out, which I thought was great. They're like, you look like, like him. Like negotiator yeah. comes in, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And ultimately, a gentleman, um, Kelly Redman, who's with the sheriff's department now, came and spoke to me. And at about that time, the, the storm was coming in and the tree was blowing back and forth. I'd been up there a long time and I could see he could see the worry in my face and I saw worry in his face. He was on the top of the cliff and I, and he said, why don't you come on down? And I said, if you'll stop the bulldozers for the weekend, if you can work that out, you know, and I'm happy to to come down. I've, I've made my point, you know, and we had newspapers from Raleigh and Winston-Salem and Greensboro and all across the state come up. Um, so there was a lot of media push and splash and we raised, I don't know, about $10,000 that weekend, which was a lot of fun. Um, and the sheriff's department was nothing but supportive. And I don't know, it ended up being a, a friendly civil disobedience and, and we stopped the bulldozers for the weekend. So, yeah. In the end, the new owner of Howard's Knob only built one house, not 44. And even though the county or conservancy doesn't own the land yet, Jeffrey holds on to the hope that one day Howard's Knob will be protected for good. That experience taught Jeffrey the art of the long game and how to more effectively do conservation work. From there, he traveled to South America on an internship and then to Ecuador, where he was hired to map out 2,000 acres of cloud forest. And he fell even deeper in love with the natural world and ecosystems. He went back to school to learn how to map on a larger scale to help with bigger deforestation issues and protective land efforts. Three years into that geography program, he was offered and accepted a position for the director of the National Committee for the New River, which is now called the New River Conservancy. As the director, he worked to protect the three large state rivers and watershed areas. There, he got really good at leveraging resources, telling stories, and raising money. We did a $14 million raise uh, in two years, uh, which was amazing. I sold an idea of a fishable, swimmable, drinkable river to people that hadn't even, didn't even know the river, but we raised $14 million and pretty amazing to see the ability to tell a story and compel others. One thing he learned as the director for the New River Conservancy was that you can move a lot faster with private money versus writing grants. So from there, he started his own business called Frontline Conservation Real Estate and sometime after that held a prominent position for Heifer International, an organization that helps families move from poverty to power by supporting and investing alongside local farmers and their communities. Jeffrey, do you have any advice for young entrepreneurs who are listening and feel really inspired and, and drawn towards a cause, but are also feeling really intimidated by the idea of being a director or a leader or raising $14 million or any of those things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I was pissed off, right? I mean, I used my anger and I focused it. I, I was upset with what was happening and I wanted to do something about it. And so, I mean, there's nothing better than for you to see something that pisses you off and realize it's a much bigger problem and it's probably being played out all over. Can you solve it from a 
entrepreneurial lens, but I think it starts with passion. You know, what are you passionate about? So that curiosity led into something that turned more passionate over time as I understood the bigger picture. So from curiosity and passion, I then found purpose. And those three really became sort of a motivation for me. That's how it got started. And then I always use the, the trick of, of sort of the curiosity, the passion and the purpose. Yeah, if you don't have those things as an entrepreneur, then you're not going to last long. You've done a lot of teaching and coaching for entrepreneurs, um, and you do that alongside your own mentor, uh, Annie Price. You're now currently running 10 entrepreneurs through a year-long program called Emergent. Um, What are some of your favorite things about leading those entrepreneurs through this program where you're teaching things like leadership, self-reflection, goal setting? What's amazing working with a group of entrepreneurs for a year is everybody goes through their shit. Like life goes on, right? People die. People are born. Right. Businesses go up. Businesses go down. People burn out. Um, People thrive, right? It's just crazy to watch this emergence of, of characters and soul and spirit and, and fight for whatever they're trying to fight for. And just to watch it in a group setting and support each other with vulnerability and uh, shared capacity and, you know, watching Declan go work with two of the companies that are also in the course that need his help. And so watching this, this interplay of, 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 of a true tribe of entrepreneurs working together to solve wicked problems in the world is remarkable to me. Um, And I think Western North Carolina is where we should make our mark. It's not just Boone, it's the high country. And it's not just the high country, it's Western North Carolina. You know, we have a lot of our responsibility in the Blue Ridge Mountains here. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But my concern is in 20 years, when it's 120 degrees down in Raleigh and Durham and Charlotte, Everybody's going to want to be up here. The biggest future trend we're going to see is mass migration of people. We're already seeing it. And so those folks are going to come up the mountain where it's cooler. We need to be in front of that. Yes, there's entrepreneurial opportunities, but we should be building companies that are solving problems. And I want to see more of us talking about that and trying to figure out how do we make Western North Carolina an entrepreneurial you know, hub or mecca. Uh, where we support each other, but we're also building companies that are going to withstand um, uh, this pressure that we're going to see as well as build more climate resilient um, startup uh, enabled um, communities, because I think entrepreneurs solve problems that the government will never solve. That's always on my mind from a bigger picture perspective. And that emergent group was just a little test piece of, wow, that's just 10 entrepreneurs. What if we had a thousand entrepreneurs? Yeah. And we probably do. Well, something I've heard you kind of say over and over again is that that coming back to purpose and something you say a lot of well, as well as entrepreneurs solve problems. And I think that's a question that you're you're always kind of throwing out there that makes a lot of people stop and reflect and say, okay, yeah, what is the purpose of this? Because I think a lot of people, especially young people that are maybe coming out of business school or, you know, listening to all the, the podcasts about business and stuff is they can get a little bit swept away in the that achievement side of it for themselves, right? How much money can I achieve? How much status or power can I achieve? And they don't always stop and ask themselves, you know, for what purpose or what problem am I really solving? Do you, do you find that some people might 
you might get involved with the business and and you sort of get in there and, and realize, oh, this person's just, they really just want the money. They don't really, they're not really focusing on a problem or a purpose. Definitely. I see that. And I mean, I think it's more of how sustainable is that, right? I mean, and you can look at the problem as the problem we're solving from a larger context, a purpose perspective, a wicked problem. Is it like a really big problem? That's what I tend to find myself wrapped up in um, spending, you know, decades of my life and big wicked problems. Some people may say, you know, I'm trying to solve a problem for a certain set of, uh, of, of customers. Um, and it's, it's still important that they're solving a problem where they wouldn't have customers. So there's some really early work on sort of product market fit that you have to do and play with. But if there's no market for it, there's no reason to spend $50,000 building a product that nobody wants. Uh, and I think that's an easy place to be for builders, creators. Let me build it. Let me build exactly. it. Inventors, yeah, right. It's especially, geek out yeah, on it. You know, it's like, oh, this is a cool idea, but does do people actually want it? So, you know, I think you might be offering a workshop on this very thing yes. soon. But by the time this podcast goes out, it that will have have passed most well, likely. We'll do more but of them. for those that, yeah, we'll do more of them. So just yeah, make sure you're on the newsletter, the Startup High Country newsletter, and you'll get word of when when Jeffrey's teaching another customer discovery workshop because that really that you know. I love the phrase quit early, right? If you've got a great idea, great, you know, but don't spend months and months and money and money and buckets of energy in building a whole business before you actually take the time to ask and prove, is this a problem we're solving? Are there actually customers who are going to be willing to pay me money for this thing or this service? Right, and is that market growing? Is it shrinking? Am I going to invest in public telephones, right? I mean, what... You, you want to be careful about what you're stepping into from a number of reasons. And back to the personal side, I like to think, wow, I might spend a decade and hundreds of thousands of dollars and blood, sweat and tears doing this. Right. And there's a trade off. There's a trade off. If I do this, I can't do something else. Is this really worth me spending the next decade on when we only really probably have eight decades in our life? And you know, the first decade's probably a wash. I mean, I was learning some entrepreneurial things at around 10. I had a rent-a-pen business, which was really trying to rent uh, number two pencils because nobody had them for their tests. And the name rent-a-pencil didn't sound right. So I had rent-a-pen. And then nobody ever gave the pencils back. <laughs> anyway, it was a total wash. <laughs> I love but, that. <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, the first decade, would this we're kind of thrown into what we're thrown into, right? But... I, I, the, the, the next decade and the next preceding probably five decades is your chance to do an entrepreneurial pursuit. When I'm 70, I hope I'm still engaged in a fight for something worth fighting for, a problem worth solving. But do I need to be running that company then? No, probably not. Um, and so I like to think about decades and there's only a few of them. And these endeavors take that much time. Yeah, you might spin up a company and sell it in three years for $500 million. But that's all the heroics that we read in Fast you know, Company and Inc. Magazine. And it's just, it's very, 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 very rare. Um, so, yeah, I don't think life's worth that. Uh, I think it's more important to be engaged and involved and connected to a bigger purpose that's truly worth fighting for, a problem worth solving. 
Absolutely. And speaking of problems worth solving, it was what about four years ago that you sat down with Sam Glover and James Bance and essentially gave birth to Startup High Country. Uh, you were all these entrepreneurial guys living in the high country and wanted to see just more of a sort of startup incubator kind of culture happening here, more high paying jobs here. Um, and it was partly thanks to your incredible grant writing skills, right? Something you'd learned to do very well in your former con conservation work that uh, Startup High Country received a very generous grant from NC Idea to do what we do now, which is to foster entrepreneurship in the high country. And, um, and so one question I get asked a lot is, like, why? You know, why would someone, an organization, give money to people like us to do things like get entrepreneurs together, teach workshops to them, celebrate their successes, and, and throw events for entrepreneurs? What's so important about supporting entrepreneurship for a community? Well, for, first, first of all, because they, it's been proven out. I mean, this is not a, that's a very large organization uh, run by a very smart man, Tom Rue, worked for the Kauffman Foundation, studying entrepreneurship and its impacts uh, across the planet. I mean, they're connected to a global network of building entrepreneurs. And so I think because of the environment in which we live and because of technology, we have a chance to do and build this a different way. And entrepreneurship, to me, is the answer. Um, traveling, I spent some time in Southeast Asia traveling uh, a few years ago, uh, yanked the kids out of school, and we, we traveled. And it was really interesting in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and Thailand, where I was, all different. Each had their own approach towards getting out of poverty, and it was entrepreneurship. All their newspapers, their investment, they talked about it over and over again. They all had co-working spaces but they were working hard to make entrepreneurship happen to get them out of poverty. And in rural America, disenfranchised communities, uh, communities of color, they're typically left out. And so people like NC Idea see this as a critical way to bring people permanently up, you know, into the middle class or, or beyond to get them the economic development uh, and the access to the resources. That's what they're paying for. Uh, they see it as an equality issue, and I, I love it. It's 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 the right approach. And how is Startup High Country working to enact on those ideas? Well, I mean, we we have several programs. I would say they're also nascent, but one of our probably most popular because it's where we see each other. Uh, you know, is our networking events. Uh, the COVID didn't help, right? We had to shut that down for a while, but we're back, and it's exciting. I think people getting together, rubbing shoulders, sharing ideas, making happy collisions happen. We don't have a big population here, uh, so we're going to have a smaller entrepreneurial community, but that doesn't mean we can't be strong. And so to do that, we need to run into each other more. And so that's one way of doing that. And then we're trying to step into more of these courses, workshops that people need. Uh, again, you can connect that way, get closer, but you can also apply some of the theories that we're learning around entrepreneurship to your own businesses and share basically your scars, what's working, what's not. Um, and so that's a lot of fun. And again, a way to build social capital and build, build our community. Jeffrey, is there an official link between Startup High Country and the High Country Impact Fund? There was in the beginning. We knew that we needed access to capital to invest in companies that didn't exist up here. You couldn't go to a bank and borrow money. So we did two things. One, we got Mountain BizWorks to move an office up here, which Chris, Chris Grasinger runs. 
Um, uh, he was a original supporter and, and founder of uh, co-founder of Startup High Country as well. Um, and so we needed access to capital. So one was getting the lending from Mountain BizWorks, which is a CDFI, which can lend um, a lot differently uh, than a bank and more freely. And then the the capital side of fundraising for startups, equity capital per se, investments we needed. And so we wanted to build an angel fund and we're moving into fund two right now um, for fund, actively fundraising for it right now. And it'll be a larger fund. And what are the kind of businesses or what are the kind of ideas or businesses that the High Country Impact Fund is looking to give money to? I mean, we're pretty agnostic on the industry itself. Um, early stage companies are where we typically invest our money, uh, but they've been involved in you know product development to um, healthcare. To um, we've had some really interesting innovators in, in the health space with products. One out of Asheville called Elite HRV, doing heart rate variability, super fa- fascinating technology. Uh, they recently hired somebody from Pixar. I mean, you know, somebody's doing well when they hire somebody from Pixar. Uh, pretty exciting stuff. But <laughs> yeah. uh, Jason, the founder there, was great, and we were there. We were the early money in to help him get there, and we still support each other. And I, it's just great to watch uh, because we want to see more entrepreneurs here deal ready. You know, they've built a good business. They're growing. They got a problem we're solving. Uh, they're they're able to execute. They're building a team. They know their weaknesses. They're humble. They're smart. They're hungry. Those things are really important. And we're investing in the people, not so much the the plan, because you know the plan's going to go to shit. It always does. But can the team execute? Can they tack the sales when they need to? And so that's what we're looking for. So I encourage any entrepreneurs that are interested in building a company uh, that's going to solve a problem we're solving and needs to raise money to come talk to us. Uh, we can do practice pitches, you know, we should do some more pitch practice for, you know, in in front of a live audience, but, but if people are interested in those things, startup high country can certainly help put those together uh, because it's, it's nerve wracking to get in front of somebody and pitch for money. And so you want to practice and practice and practice. Um, But yeah. Jeffrey, this has been so much fun and thank you for sharing all of the, the story and, Thank you for all that you do today. Uh, before you go, I always like to ask, what's the the most high country thing you've done lately? The most high? Well, I went and stood in the river. Um, I like to fish. I like to trout fish. I like smallmouth too. I do both. Um, but this past weekend, I went and stood in the river and I didn't catch a single fish. Um, and it's funny, I normally would work up and down the stream. Um, you know, I get pretty excited about fishing and want to catch fish but in this case i i just stood there and i just i just i just sat there and sat on leaned back on a boulder and 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 just watched and observed and it was the coolest thing ever i mean you get next to running water in the high country which is totally accessible to us up here these river systems is very unique uh most times you have to drive and travel to get somewhere here we have them right here in high country and so to sit there in the river I forgot everything. I mean, I was just in a whole nother world and time disappeared and it was a beautiful thing. High country is a special place. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. This episode was produced and edited by me, Samantha Wright, Community Director at Startup High Country. 
Learn more about our events, workshops, and ways to get involved with Startup High Country at startuphc.com. A special thank you to Matt Wasson for the creation of some of our music. Startup High Country is supported by NC Idea, a private foundation that supports entrepreneurship in North Carolina through grants and innovative programs. Thank you to the Watauga EDC for their support and for helping build the entrepreneurial landscape of Western North Carolina. I'm Samantha Wright, and you've been listening to Made in the High Country.